0: Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 26th, and we're going to wrap up our our survey looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We've been taking some large chunks of scripture and looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to do that again today, really concluding with Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. I'm going to read from the ESV, so here as I read. Build your house on the rock, every one then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and every one who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As we have seen at the heart of Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is this vision this invitation of a countercultural way to live life among Jesus's followers among each other as among among believers and for for many of us many contemporary Christians the term countercultural carries a good deal of of Weight of negative weight to that, and understandably so. But, but if Jesus, as, as depicted in the Gospel of Matthew, was not preaching against the grain in, in first century Jerusalem, he would not have prefaced his, his new commandments with the, the phrase, you have heard it said, that it was said, but I say to you, Matthew five twenty one through 22, for example, So we're not surprised then when we're told at the end of the sermon that the listeners, the people, were astounded at Jesus' teaching. That's Matthew 7, 28. You see, if Jesus were to step into uh, the pulpits of our churches today, if Jesus was to come today to our parking lot service, our behavior, my behavior, quite possibly... Would continue to merit use of of these phrases, this astounding astoundedness you see people you you and I, and certainly nations, continue to respond to violence with violence rather than turning the other cheek. People and nations continue to pursue wealth much more vigorously than we seek to be poor in spirit. And of course, among those of us who are not violent and are not storing up treasures for ourselves, or not even actively pursuing uh, sexual immorality, few of us would claim to have totally evaded or left behind anger, covetousness, lust. It does not mean that we are not to continuously pray and and aspire, right, to rid our lives of these faults for, you know, for by and large, the sins with a small s, sins with a small s, haven't changed over the last two millennia. The the only thing that seems to change from generation to generation are the faces of the people who are radically in need of God's grace. Faces like mine and yours. These last Couple weeks have suggested, however, that that if we are called to be fully human in the sense that Jesus has been the only fully human person to date, then our sinfulness, my sinfulness, is not the only thing that defines me, or it's not the only thing that defines us. You see, indeed, the church has proclaimed that God's call to transcend sinfulness, to live in relationship with God, to ultimately commune with God forever, eternally, also defines who I am. It also is my identity. See, my predisposition towards sin does not have to be my identification because of a holy God. It doesn't define who I am, but my identity defines the human species whether in the first century or the most current. So among created beings, we are unique in this sense. We may never fully overcome our sins that plague our lives, and each of us has our own set of shortcomings. But the distinctive aspect of the Christian life, of the life of the believer, of a follower of Jesus, is that all of us are constantly being called out of our sin into something much greater. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us not only to constantly seek God's forgiveness for our sins, which ultimately build this barrier between us and a holy God, this constant call for repentance, this constant need for forgiveness, asking for God's forgiveness, but also to forgive those who wrong us. You see, forgiveness is not purely this spiritual or mental act in the Sermon on the Mount. It's very physical. It's down and dirty. You see, we're called to turn the other cheek rather than strike back at those who would do us harm, to do good to them that hate you, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. In all of our actions, in all of the things that I do, we either embody God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy, or we embody the world's ethic of looking out for ourselves first and what we believe to be our best interests. And so doing... We either, I either submit to the purposes of the perfect will of the Lord, or I submit to my own flawed ego. I cannot serve. We cannot serve two masters. But how do we serve? There seems to be some ambiguity in this incredible sermon. In chapter 5, Jesus seems intent not only on having us desire and behave well. But also to do so publicly, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. Yet on the teachings on giving, prayer, and fasting, the portions of teaching that bookend the Lord's prayer, well, Jesus emphasizes that much of what we do as believers must be done in secret. The answer, I think, is that our service to Jesus is neither completely public, nor is it Totally private or this clandestine activity. Our ability to live in a peaceful, countercultural manner, as called for by the Beatitudes, or to align my desires with my actions, as Jesus' words on the commandments, or to rely on God in prayer is not about us and our ability. It's not about me and what I can do, but about a holy God. You see, the reason for letting our light shine is to glorify God, not somehow to illuminate myself. And the same applies to prayer in secret. For, for in the Lord's prayer, we offer to God the, phrase, the, the praise that says, yours is the kingdom and glory forever. Thine is the kingdom and glory forever. It's not about my kingdom building. It's about the kingdom of God. At the beginning of these weeks, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we, we noticed or excuse me, noted the importance of proclaiming Jesus to be fully God and fully human. Not only is he the only human ever to be fully God, but he is also the only human ever to be fully human, precisely because his life from the birth through his childhood, his adolescence, his young adulthood, to the event of his death, to the resurrection, ascension, was lived in order to glorify God. That's it. To glorify God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls you and I to such a life. He calls us and invites us, gives us an invitation to a life in which all prayer, all desire and action is ordered to the goal, the one goal of glorification of God the Father in all of us. What if we took this call, this invitation, this vocation, this job seriously? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes that when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished. They were astounded at his doctrine. Matthew 7, 28. And rightly so. Because here was an individual expanding on Old Testament piety as no one ever had. But the astonishment did not end with the words of Jesus' sermon or the authority with which he preached to them there are more beatitudes to come and also more healings and other miracles which were astonishing not only because they seemed to violate both the laws of Judaism and the laws of nature but ultimately because of the love in Jesus that prompted them to begin with imagine the astonishment of the world today if we were to embody the words of the Sermon on the Mount, if we were to live in and to accept this invitation, which by definition means that we would embody them humbly. I want to close with reading Romans 11 verses 33 through 36 from the NIV, the doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, and go in peace. May God bless.